The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. Welcome to the show. I'm Carol Bossert, and you're listening to Museum Life. And for listeners who tune in regularly, you know that I have a particular fondness for natural history and natural history exhibits. So you can imagine when I was walking through the uh, bookstore at the American Alliance of Museums conference just a few weeks ago, and I spied uh, a book with the title of Dinosaurs and Dioramas. Uh, You can just imagine how excited I was, and I picked it up, and imagine my even greater excitement and thrill when I was able to meet the authors, Sarah Chacon and Richard Kissel, and I am thrilled that they are on my show today. You know, many of us have very fond memories of our first visit to a natural history museum, often with great dinosaur skeletons or neatly arranged rows of of butterflies or insects or rocks and minerals. And for many of us, the musty smells will stay with us uh, forever in our memories as a a wonderful childhood experience. Uh, Scientists uh, for centuries have explored and understood nature by collecting and cataloging all of its stuff. And that stuff became the basis of our natural history collections. But the question is, what do these collections hold for us in today's modern world of sleek laboratories and molecular biology and all sorts of technical gizmos? Well, Sarah and Richard are here today to uh, share some of their insights uh, with us on on that topic. I'm going to let Sarah and Richard uh, give their own brief introductions today uh, because I think it's always very interesting for us to see and learn how people have gotten from point A to point B and what their career trajectories have, uh, how, how they've been led uh, to what they're doing today and how their experiences have influenced uh, what they're doing today. So, Sarah, Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carol. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having us. 
Sarah, I'm going to begin with you and, and ask this question. If you could just share briefly with our listening audience your career trajectory and particularly what experiences have impacted the ways in which you think about natural history and natural history museums. Sure. Thank you again, Carol, for hosting us this morning. I really cannot think of a better way to spend an hour than talking about natural history museums. So I definitely share your affinity for the subject. Uh, now, my career trajectory will probably sound a bit familiar to your listeners. It begins, as I've noticed many museum professionals do, with my seven-year-old self and my first visit to the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, where I happened to meet my first mummy. So I have been a stuffed person ever since. As an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to intern with Dr. John Carroll, who's the Regenstein's Curator of Specific Anthropology at the Field Museum. Now, the Field Museum has an astounding collection. It is over 65,000 catalog items in their Pacific collection alone. So walking those halls, I felt like part of something that was much bigger than myself. And every time I go back, I'm instantly captivated by the objects, the history and the physical grandeur of the institution. Now, the elephants in Stanley Field Hall also help, I must say. I went on to complete a terminal master's degree in anthropology, archaeology, and a graduate certificate in museum management from the University of South Carolina, where my work focused on the African diaspora and the spatial control of enslaved labor at the largest colonial and antebellum shipyard in the state. Upon completing my degree, I worked as a content coordinator and developer for Christopher Chagorn and Associates, which was an exhibit design firm in Boston. This is where I learned the ropes of exhibition design and development from a number of very fabulous mentors. I worked on projects ranging from birds to airplanes to a German Nazi submarine. I enjoyed the creativity of the process immensely, but I started to miss the stuff. I returned to graduate school to complete my PhD in archaeology, where I focused on the archaeological analysis of working class poverty as part of the Ludlow Collective, which was a collaborative archaeological project in southwestern Colorado. I like to think of myself as having two hats, but they're made out of the same cloth my exhibition developer hat and my archaeologist hat. Upon graduating, I once again returned to the world of exhibition design, and I served as director of exhibits for the Paleontological Research Institution and its Museum of the Earth, which is a small natural history museum affiliated with Cornell University located in Ithaca, New York. I began teaching as an adjunct for the Johns Hopkins Graduate Program in Museum Studies in 2009, revising and teaching their core course on exhibition strategy. I then became a full-time faculty member and program coordinator and eventually the assistant director and a senior lecturer in the program. I'm an educator at heart and a communicator and a teacher, and I really relish the opportunity to reach visitors through exhibition design and development and to reach students, peers, and museum professionals through Johns Hopkins Graduate Program in Museum Studies. I also count myself lucky that I have always kept a piece of my seven-year-old self. And every time I step into a museum, no matter what kind, but particularly natural history, I can't help but be moved by the aura of the object. Sarah, thank you so much. There is so there's so much in in that wonderful story, and I'm sure we'll touch upon these themes again. But uh, so, Richard, uh, could you give us a, a, a similar um, story? Absolutely, and uh, yeah. <laughs> And, and, and similar is, is probably the key word, you know, as Sarah mentioned, for, for many of us in the museum fields. Uh, for me, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, my father was a, was a coal miner there in western Pennsylvania, and he would bring home fossils, fossil ferns, fossil horsetails, et cetera, et cetera. 
And we, we were always hoping to find that trilobite, not even having an understanding of depositional and geological processes that we never would find one. But the, the point being, he would bring home these fossils for me, and it was just this fascinating glimpse into, you know, the, the, this other planet that had existed. And conveniently enough, a quick 45-minute drive would, would take us to the Carnegie Museum down there in, in, in Pittsburgh, and their wonderful, wonderful dinosaur hall. And it was filled with all of the classic dinosaurs that, that we all grew up with, you know, Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, Apatosaurus, Diplodocus. At the time, that museum had, was, was one of two museums that had a, had a skeleton of T-Rex on display. Triceratops is another example. And so my, my parents were, were certainly kind enough to, to take me down to that museum at least twice a year into that great, as you described, musty, dark dinosaur hall. And I was that kid. I was that kid that, that essentially had a room full of dinosaur toys, stuffed toys, posters, plastic marks, dinosaur toys, anything we could get our hands on. And it was, of course, long before the, the boom of Jurassic Park, and now you can find dinosaurs in just about every museum gift shop out there, even if it's not a natural history museum, they find their way in there. Um, and so it was much more difficult back back when I was a child finding finding that kind of decor for my room, but, but we did, and uh, I was that kid. And if you could see my either my home office or my, my office here at the Peabody Museum, right now you'd see pretty much a similar decor of, of dinosaur material. And so I've always had this, this fascination with, with nature and, in particular, past worlds. And as I was going through school, going through high school, it was time to make a decision as I was going to go off to college. And I had interests in art, and I had this interest in science. And I came to the conclusion, at least me personally, that I felt that you know, if, if I pursued the science, I could keep the art because art is so critical to science. Science can't exist without art. And so I, I pursued paleontology, went into school to do paleontology with a research focus. As I was completing my, my PhD up at the University of Toronto, again, with, with a research scientific focus, um, a position had opened up at the Field Museum, essentially to be the lead content specialist, the lead curator for their renovation of their permanent fossil galleries. And I'd always been interested in exhibits and science education. The, the, the little kid that was coming home from the Carnegie Museum and drawing terrible, terrible probably drawings of dinosaurs, I would flip the page and do a floor plan of my ideal dinosaur hall. And so I've always had that interest and passion for not only the science, but also the, the dissemination of that science, the education. And so when this position opened up in Chicago at the Field Museum, and I applied for it, and the offer came through, it was pretty much a no-brainer for me, and I decided to then take my career and focus less on the actual scientific research and focus on scientific outreach, science outreach. And so taking that position at the Field Museum, working as the lead content specialist for that exhibit was a wonderful experience because... I was one of the few on the team that worked with every single aspect of the project from 
assisting with crafting label copy to working with the model makers, the 3D designers, the graphic designers, consultants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it gave me uh, even more than I was going to say a glimpse of the process, but I was thickly embedded in every aspect of the process and decided that that's, from that point on, that's, that's what I wanted to pursue. And so after working at the Field Museum for five years, I took a different position up in upstate New York at Museum of the Earth, which is actually where, where Sarah and I first met. And then here I am today at the, the Peabody Museum of Natural History here on the, at Yale University. Well, thank you, Richard. That, that, too, is a wonderful story. And, yes, it has so many parallels uh, to so many of us. But I, I think the key, of course, is that both of you have, have followed your passions and continue to uh, use your passions to, uh, to communicate with others. And, and, and that is so wonderful. And I think it, it's interesting that all three of us share uh, a, a love of the Field Museum is one of those places that really moved <laughs> us uh, moved us forward. Um, so, uh, Sarah, back to you, um, and I'll give Richard a, a chance to uh, chime in as well. But So what prompted you to write this book? Well, that's a good question, Carol. Um, the need for such a resource really became apparent to me following the development of Exhibition Strategies, which is a core course in the Online Museum Studies graduate program at Hopkins. Now, the course was designed to offer an introduction to exhibition development and design. It's also taught by Richard, as well as some other really additional fabulous adjunct faculty we have, including Paul Pearson, Liza Lawson, and Emily Sykes. Now, an exhaustive survey of the literature revealed to me that there were some significant gaps in comprehensive resources available for students and museum professionals both. Now, in the past year, we've seen this shift as a number of texts have come out on the subject, including some of your previous guests. For example, Leslie Bedford's book on the art of museum exhibitions and Pauline McKenna-Craft and Janet Kamen's book on creating exhibitions. But texts at the time seemed to be divided into those that offered an analysis of existing design and then those that offered instruction on how to create engaging exhibitions, with the majority of texts providing analysis of existing design strategies. So the course really inspired the book. And based on our backgrounds with Richard Paleontology and myself, Archaeology, it seemed natural to tie it specifically to natural history museums and topics and embed it in the process of science. So while that's the focus in the book, I think it also serves a bigger purpose. As one of our reviewers, David Reitmeyer, he suggested that it provides a valuable lesson not just for natural history museums, but for any organization or museum professional thinking about developing an exhibition. So that was really the, the um, impetus for the book. Um, and Richard can speak to that a little bit as well. Sure, yeah. And then once Sarah and I had, had agreed that this was a resource that we had wanted to see for the museum field, both for museum professionals, but also, as, as Sarah mentioned, for students about to enter the field, uh, we basically asked ourselves, what is the reference that we would have wanted? And that was really guiding us. And it's it's like any publication. It's it's an instance of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. And we really wanted, in addition to putting our perspective out there, really accumulate a really nice sampling from the existing literature and cite that and provide that for the audience as well, too. So if they were reading through our book and were 
had a deeper interest in a, in a topic that, that we discuss in the book, that we would be able to provide them with the references to explore those topics more deeply. And then once we both agreed that, that we would go ahead and commit to this, we basically moved forward with the book, came up with an outline, divided the chapters in half, divided them up amongst ourselves, and decided to write and, and change them back and forth a few times. And we had a, a pretty solid draft at that point. So I've done a, a, a number of co-authored books before, and both of them I've had very luckily tremendous experiences with both authors and that our voices and tones were, were similar enough and our, our vision was similar enough that it was a really natural, very easy, I think that's probably the key word, it was a very easy collaboration to have two brains coming up with one product. It, it, it was, from my perspective, uh, it was very easy and went very, very well. Well, I, I, I certainly that uh, I certainly agree. I think it is a, it is a wonderful read. Uh, it it uh, even for those of us who have uh, been in this business for a while and know some of the history, it's lovely to have it all in one uh, very clear, uh, clearly written. Um, uh, Publication, so I do uh, encourage all uh, everyone who's listening to this to uh, to get a copy. It is uh, published by Left Coast Press, uh, recently published, and uh, I think Left Coast Press is actually having running a sale right now. I understand. So uh, today would be today would be the day, and it can be part of your summer reading. But. Before we get into you know the the practical uh, some of the practical aspects of of uh, exhibiting natural history materials, Richard, I'd like to one of the the uh, statements made in the book and and uh, you know I don't know whether it was particularly attributed to you or to Sarah, but I, I know you both share this philosophy. Uh, and in the book, you state that natural history is about everything. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, when we were when we started to draft. The, the text for the book and the subtitle, Creating Natural History Exhibitions, obviously one of the things we wanted to do was define natural history, one of the necessary steps. And the more that I thought about it, the more that we thought about it, it's really natural history is everything. And that's not the easy way out for defining it. Uh, you look out the window, that's natural history. You look at your own body, that's natural history. Everything we do and encounter is rooted in Earth and its deep, deep history. It's four and a half billion year history. From the contents of our cells to behavior, the bodies that we carry around are an accumulation of four billion years of evolution and every other species on this planet of the millions of species has a history just like we have a history. And so humanity is is embedded. It's truly a part of nature. And so by extension are its products. And the products that we produce, art, for example, is a human endeavor. And as humans are part of nature, art is a subsection of natural history. And so looking at the natural world, we have these different interpretations of the natural world. Art is more of an emotional interpretation and then you have science, which is more of an evidence-based interpretation of the natural world. And so looking at science, looking at interpreting nature through this evidence-based system and considering humans as a part of that natural world, 
that was pretty much at the end of the day the the only definition with which we were satisfied is that the natural history is everything and very very importantly humanity and the products of humanity are a part of that natural story because as i'd mentioned the bodies we carry around are carrying around 4 billion years of of evolutionary product and so that was the 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 logical pathway for for back of a, for lack of a better phrase um, that we took to arrive at that statement that, that natural history is everything with a period at the end of that statement. I think I that thank you, Richard. I, that that's actually uh, the more I would read that statement uh, and and certainly listening to your uh, your description and and um, uh, explanation, uh, the more I I have been thinking about the possibilities of natural history uh, museums uh, and and exhibitions. But before we go on uh, on to some of these more uh, other interesting topics, we are going to take a short break. So. Uh, uh, please stay tuned for more discussions with uh, Sarah and Richard. Remember, of course, you're listening to Museum Life, and you can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Uh, please let me know what topics you think we should be talking about here on Museum Life. We'll be back in a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. 
Uh, I'm Carol Bossert, and I'm here today with Sarah Chacon and Richard Kissel. We've been talking about natural history, natural history museums and their collections. And Richard, right before we went to break, you were uh, talking to us uh, and explaining the statement that's made in the book that natural history is about everything. And right before I had to cut you off, you were beginning to talk about science and natural history. And I wonder if you could uh, ex- just talk a little bit more about the relationship between these two subjects. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we were discussing, you know, natural history really is the natural world, all of its components, and the history of those components, their history. And so the relationship between science and nature, intimate bedfellows, essentially, you know, one of the best definitions that I've ever heard for science, and it's one that I use years and years after I've heard it, is that science is simply the attempt to understand and explain natural phenomena. What we see outside of our window, what we see is we just carry ourselves through every day, all of these phenomena that surround us, you know, why are they happening? And usually following that definition I always follow up with the the concept that scientists are essentially those kids that never stopped asking why. And that's something that we also emphasize in the book, that science is really the root, the core of science is just productive curiosity. It's, It's looking at the world, asking questions, and seeking to find answers to those questions, looking at all these different puzzle pieces and putting them together to see the complete picture of a particular question. And so when, you, when you're looking at the relationship between science and natural history, you know, one way to look at it would be to think of, of nature and its history as, as the entity, and then science is the human endeavor. It's the human process by which we try to understand that entity, the way we try to understand nature. And so, you know, nature is is the thing and the history of the thing, and science is therefore the process by which we, we strive to understand that, to understand the world that we are a part of. Thank you. That's. Uh, it almost makes me sad that we have inadvertently within our museum uh, community split those things up. And I don't think any of us meant to, uh, but the unintended consequences of having some museums labeled as natural history museums and some institutions labeled as science centers may sometimes give a false impression of that relationship. Maybe that's something that is a broader community we need to be uh, thinking about. But Sarah, um, what I'd like you to sort of chime in here too. Um, what, uh, how have you seen, uh, you know, based on your, your background in anthropology, how have you seen natural history museums sort of change over time or how we think about natural history museums? Well, there are certainly some clear challenges that natural history museums and anthropological collections in particular face. And I'm thinking particularly in the post-NAGPRA era. Um, and I will mention for those of your listeners who might not be familiar with NAGPRA, this is a federal law which provides a process for museums and federal agencies to return certain Native American cultural items to lineal descendants and culturally affiliated Indian tribes and Native Hawaiian organizations. 
Now, these objects could range from human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, or objects of cultural patrimony. Now, any public or private museum that receives federal funds is required to comply with this legislation, which includes the documentation and often repatriation of such items in their collection. Now, Natural History Museums, since 1990, when the legislation was passed, have had to consider some new issues, issues of ownership, issues of representation, and issues of repatriation. They need to understand the legacies of past collections, which also means then recognizing the institution's historic role in the creation of the other within their displays and also the institutional relationship with colonial regimes. Now, there's been a historic tendency of many natural history museums to place native groups and indigenous groups within nature and ourselves outside of nature. So this leads us back to the discussion Richard was having on humanity's place within nature, all of humanity. So there's been a movement recently toward navigating a shared curatorial practice in this respect. Now, the challenge here comes in not just the inclusion of a benign native voice, but in actually creating project equals in a space for a native control of content. Now, this hasn't been easy for all the reasons you can think of, but these conversations have been happening, and relationships are being repaired, and new ones are being forged. Now, NAGPRA, as many anthropologists will tell you, it wasn't a silver bullet. It had the host of its own problems and its own complications, but it did get the ball rolling in some very important directions because natural history museums continue to collect ethnographic and archaeological collections, and they continue to create knowledge and to share that knowledge with their public. Now, natural history museums have been historically, and I would argue continue, to be sites of knowledge-making, and they're unique in their ability of making that knowledge available to the public, then through exhibitions and displays. So the question for natural history museums still remains, how do we balance exhibition and research? And today's natural history museums are placed at the center of some of today's most challenging issues, including climate change, conservation, biodiversity loss, and energy. So as we suggest in the book, natural history museums are, again, they're finding their charge within society, and they're answering a new call to return to their roots and promote humanity's sense of being and their place within nature. And that's inclusive of all of humanity. Uh, thank you, Sarah. I, I want to go back to something uh, that, that you said. I want to make sure that, that we're all, that I'm understanding it, and that uh, is this, this term you use that natural history museums are sites of knowledge. Now, I'm assuming that, that what that what that means is that they are places of active collecting and research, and and yeah. and collecting in the uh, in the name of, uh, of of research, even though uh, some of our sensibilities about uh, what we collect and how we collect it, who we collect it from, uh, and how we then interpret that have have changed over time. Yes, and I, I would suggest too, Carol, that they're not just sites of, um, of existing knowledge, but they're actually active in knowledge creation as active research institutions. And so we're, they're continually creating knowledge for and sharing that knowledge then with their visitors and with the public, um, which I think puts them in a very unique position. You're right. So, so that natural history museums, uh, in you know, at, 
not that uh, as opposed to perhaps uh, other institutions that we call museums, we can al also think of them uh, uh, such like universities where there is uh, a, a, a significant scientific research component. It's just in these cases that research is happening in the museum itself. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and Sarah, uh, uh, that that I gotta ask. I w um, all of this discussion leads me to one of the big challenges that I know many of my clients uh, uh, come uh, come to, and that is that there are there's a research component to uh, natural history collections, uh, and then there is that display component, and not all of the collection material that one gathers for research is easily displayed and whether you know it's because of a cultural sensibility such as a you know a skull or something that now will will uh, be repatriated or if it's you know I always think of all of those wonderful fish and invertebrates uh, that are collected uh, that are then stored in liquid um, it used to be formalin now it's alcohol uh, we affectionately call the wet collection and uh, uh, and and even some of the the herbarium sheets where you know the press plants it seems to me that these these have very significant roles in research but you know, how do we use those materials and that collection, uh, those collection materials, to their best benefit uh, for display? Well, certainly, uh, which, the research specimens um, can create um, can cause significant challenges in display, and in part because of their value as research specimens. So, for example, I'm thinking here of the multitude of holotype specimens in natural history collections, um, where in some cases their display would be jeopardizing their um, their physicality, which is something natural history museums have to really consider. Um, but what, what we suggest in the book, and I think is, is another important point for natural history museums, is if at all possible, and if the safety of the object, the artifact, the specimen, um, et cetera, it can be preserved, then if the opportunity presents itself to display the real, display the real, because that is, it, this is where visitors have the option or have the opportunity to interact with those real objects. If you don't get to see a real T-Rex at a museum, where in the world are you going to see a real T-Rex? And so that's sort of the, the, um, the special thing that natural history museums have, they can introduce visitors to those real objects. Um, but you know, natural history collections also have a variety of objects that have um, less research um, less research value. Um, they might have dubious location data, dubious collection information. These also can be used to engage the visitor with a variety of natural history topics. So the challenge in that case then is finding the narrative which is embedded with these objects. So they can serve as fascinating entrees into all kinds of topics. So I don't know, for example, if you're familiar with the Horniman Walrus. Do you know the Horniman Walrus from no. the Horniman Museum? Oh, he is fantastic. He is a fabulously overstuffed walrus that went on display at the Horniman Museum in 1901. 
So at the time, the Victorian tachydermist who was responsible for stuffing him had never seen a walrus before. So he didn't realize that the skin on a walrus is loose, not tight. So he stuffs this walrus to the gills. So he's this, this quirky, fabulous specimen. And his scientific value is not what makes him a popular attraction for visitors or what the museum itself capitalizes on, but it's his quirkiness as an anatomically incorrect specimen and the narrative that's attached to him. So he serves as the museum mascot, and you can even follow the Horniman walrus on Twitter. So he's fantastic. So, you know, if you look at taxidermy specimens, specimens lose much of their scientific value in their preparation. And you have to consider that UV and even ambient light can wreak havoc on feathers and fur. So displaying research skin, um, that can be a very problematic thing. Um, but that doesn't mean necessarily that... Um, other objects can't stand in also for the authenticity of that experience. And I think, I think that's kind of a, an interesting aspect of it is that in many cases, these, these objects, these natural history objects that might have um, dubious location data or collection information, it isn't their authenticity that's called into question, um, which can have an impact on their, but instead this other data, which can have an impact on their research quality, but doesn't necessarily translate in the same way um, to the visitor experience. You know, what, uh, Sarah, as you were talking, and, and, and thank you for that wonderful uh, example of the Walrus. I, I don't know it, and now I'm going to go visit uh, and certainly uh, uh, continue to check it out on Twitter. But it, that reminds, uh, reminds me of something that you and Richard uh, have, have been uh, telling us uh, seems to be a core thesis of your of the book is that natural history is about everything and therefore the the objects that we're talking about will have scientific stories but they will also have these cultural stories and both are uh, extremely important for helping us understand our, our place in the world and our, our place in history. Uh, Richard, can, can you help us uh, sort of add to that, uh, uh, that understanding of, of the multiple of stories that a natural history uh, object can tell? Yeah, absolutely. You know, building off of, <clears throat> excuse me, building off of what, Sarah was, was discussing, I think, you know, the collections of natural history institutions, they are the foundation for our understanding of the natural world. And when I say our, I mean humanity's understanding of the natural world. You know, the, the, those collections are essentially storehouses of, to use a, a common term, big data. And that's the key, is that if you look at a single object, you look at a single skeleton, you look at a single shell, you look at a single mineral crystal, you, you'll still be able to, to decipher a story from that particular object, maybe get a little bit of its history, but it's still going to limit you to what you can learn about the natural world. When you have thousands of shells and hundreds of mineral crystals from around the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you can begin to see patterns both through time and across geography, geographical uh, patterns as well. And it's those patterns that are really providing for researchers the, the fundamental core concepts of evolution, for example, or climate change, the effects of climate change on Earth life. 
And so natural history collections, you know, to say that they are the foundation of our understanding of the natural world, it, it sounds like a, a fairly bold statement, but it, it really isn't. It is that, that collection house of data that really does inform us to, about these, these theories of Earth's, the, the history of life on Earth and how that has changed over time, the history of the Earth itself, how continents have shifted over time, how climates have changed over time. And what that more importantly allows us to do is we see those patterns, we see those relationships. What that allows us to do then is to make predictions. And that's the true power of science is using the data that you find in collections, like natural history collections, recognizing patterns, seeing relationships, and then using that information to to make predictions. And so I think, ideally, when when people would think of collections of natural history, I would I would probably wager that most would think of them as storage. The word storage would come to mind. And sure enough, we we might not do a good enough job relaying this because when we show when we give tours and we show images of our collection areas, you often see endless rows of shelves. You know, it's like the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It basically <laughs> looks like storage, and it looks like dead storage. It looks like material that was collected maybe 100 years ago, and it, was, it answered questions that we had 100 years ago, but now it's just sitting there doing nothing. But collections are not storage. Collections are labs. That's a better way to think of them. They, they were, they are, and they always will be active centers for scientific research to address the new questions that that come up. And as collections being the record that we have of, of the Earth and its life, that's the record that we would look to when we have new questions that we need answers to. Thank you, Richard. That's very, very helpful. I, I don't think, I, I think that that, I love that phrase that you just used, collections are really laboratories. Uh, and that goes back to what we were talking about before in the relationship between science and natural history. Uh, before we go on, uh, I've got to take my second break for the show so please stay tuned there's so much more information uh, that Sarah and Richard can share with us in this fascinating topic about natural history museums Uh, please come back stay tuned you're listening to the museum life and I'm Carol Bossert we'll be back in just a moment Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and I'm here today with Sarah Chacon and Richard Kissel. They are the authors of a brand new, hot off the presses book called Dinosaurs and Dioramas. It's published by Left Coast Press, and you can get it uh, by going to Left Coast Press. I believe it also is available through the AAM bookstore, uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful read. Uh, right before we, we went to break Richard you were beginning to talk about the some of the challenges that are faced by natural history museums today and some of the things that they perhaps aren't uh, do aren't the, they aren't their best advocates sometimes of explaining what they do why they do it and why you have all those shelves of stuff yeah I think one of the biggest challenges that that natural history museums face and something that I would like to see and something that we're going to actively develop here at the Peabody is basically looking at the brand that we're presenting to our audiences. It's, it's, is it a brand of you come to the museum, you see skeletons, you see dioramas behind glass? And I think, a, a, but, but more importantly, what's happening behind the scenes, behind those walls? And a colleague here at the, the Peabody I think has a, a great analogy for it. If you go to the, you know, the Space Center, for example, and you go to the public part of it, you know you're in the Visitor Center. You know that there's a much bigger operation happening that you're not seeing. You're just seeing the public side of it. And natural history museums are very, very much the same way. You know, what we have on the floor, it's the typical, oh, 1% of our collections are on display. And the reason for that is that, you know, natural history museums, the public exhibitry really isn't, for many of them, really isn't the front end of the building. It's actually the back end of the building. The primary function of the building is the collections <clears throat> and the research happening in those collections. It's only what we display from those collections that actually end up in the actual exhibitions themselves. And so for visitors to essentially have a, a switch in their perception of museums as beautiful objects on display with, you know, some other stuff in the basement. But if we could get that, that perception to, to turn around and 
have them think, well, there are beautiful objects on display, but there's so much more happening here because this is an era, this is a building, an institution of active research, and the exhibitions then represent samplings of that type of research and the stories, more importantly, that that research is telling, the stories that that research is providing. And so, as you know, I have conversations with colleagues both that work on exhibitions and work in collections like my, my colleague here, Chris Norris. Flipping that perception around, I think, would be an interesting exercise for natural history museums to basically say the exhibitions aren't the main component of the museum, but simply reflecting what's happening behind the scenes of the museum. That's very interesting. Uh, it, it's almost, uh, to use your uh, uh, analogy before, it's almost as if the, the exhibits be, become the lab tour. Correct. Yes, exactly. That's, that's, that's an interesting and a, probably a good way to put it. Yes. Sarah, what uh, what what can what are your thoughts in in terms of where what challenges are natural history museums facing? I know you talked a little bit about NAGPRA. I'm sure that that continues to be a big challenge. Are there other challenges? Sure, definitely. I think to sort of springboard off of some of the issues Richard raised are issues of relevancy. Um, and, you know, often in the public consciousness, National History Museums are seen as repositories of old stuff. Um, it's creating that connection then from that stuff to its relevancy, its relevancy to not just understanding our past, but understanding our present and understanding our future. And that's what Richard was talking about a little earlier about looking at that longitudinal data, that data across space and across time. Um, that is something unique to natural history museums and their collections, in natural history collections sort of broadly. And to, to connect that with relevant issues of today is important, important for the visitorship um, as well. And I think, you know, natural history museums, as far as exhibitions go, there's also some, some expectations um, on the part of the visitorship, um, expectations of experience. You know, if I go to a natural history museum, there are certain things that I expect to see there and certain things that I find comfort in seeing there. And so those are challenges for natural history museums as well. And I'm, I am glad because of my own affinity for them, um, uh, unabashedly so, uh, but glad to see some of the large natural history museums uh, restoring their dioramas, for example. Um, I think the visitorship embraces those as exhibition techniques um, and, ha and they have an affinity for that kind of institution, um, in part because of some of the exhibition strategies that have been employed over the past century. And so I think that is also a challenge um, for natural history museums, but also an opportunity, an opportunity to use those kinds of techniques in new ways, to engage visitors in relevant subjects, um, relevant to their lives and to the place of humanity in the world. And, well, and building off, I'm sorry, building off that, uh, the, the point of relevancy, you know, I, and we touched upon this earlier, I think that's why natural history museums, those that can, and I stress those that can, have a responsibility to exhibit the real, to put the actual object out there. You know, Sarah mentioned holotypes earlier. You know, holotypes are essentially specimens that define a species. They're very, very, very important 
to science. And it's important to protect those, but if there are instances where important objects to science like that can be displayed, if the, the environmental conditions within a gallery are appropriate for their display, then I, I think it's the responsibility of, of museums to display those because, as we had mentioned earlier, if, if you can't see an actual dinosaur skeleton uh, in a museum, then, then where are you going to see that? And so I think natural history museums, as part of their relevancy, is that they must commit to displaying the real when they can, whenever they can. It, uh, going back to something else that both of you have, uh, have uh, highlighted, and I want to make sure that, that, uh, that we, we emphasize it. You mentioned that natural history museums certainly are a place where, they have the, where, where there, there is research and data that is helping us understand climate change. It seems to me that, that this is only one example of, of uh, a big issue that affects all of us, affects all humanity. Uh, and so I'm wondering, I mean, would you both agree uh, that that natural history museums really are that uh, the place where we can come together as a society and uh, deal with with the large issues of the uh, of the of of the world that we live in? I think not only can they be, I think they need to be the place where those types of topics are discussed because it, as we were discussing earlier, it's the records and the collections that are informing us to those patterns. And so if, if natural history museums aren't responsible for those discussions, then, you know, who is? <laughs> and Sarah, going back to what you were saying with, with dioramas, I mean, there, there's, they are something that uh, seem to me to be sort of at the cross section of science and art. I mean, the beautiful backdrops that were created by by some uh, amazing artists uh, need to be preserved, even if they're not in frames. Was that? Oh, most definitely. Even the process is so fascinating. And to share that process with a visitorship would be an incredible opportunity. I mean, Acres Diorama is at, at American Museum of Natural History, he went out into the field with his easel and his canvas and painted the scene in the field, then went back to the museum and painted the scene on the back of the diorama. I mean, it was just a fascinating, fantastic artistic process. Um, and so, you know, it, that goes back to what Richard was talking in the very beginning of our show about this relationship between art and science. You know, art is part of how we interpret the world. And, and that includes also with, um, with it can be embedded within dioramas, the, the art of Charles R. Knight in the early 20th century, that it impacts and influences the way we think about the past and we think about the present in our world. Uh, you have both said so much. Uh, no, 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 well, no, 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 no. Um, uh, uh, please let me dig, dig myself out of that hole. Uh, I, 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 I relish the, uh, the insights that you've 
both brought to this in terms of looking at natural history, I think, in much broader uh, cultural terms and helping us uh, do one thing that I think sometimes as professionals we we forget, and that is we get uh, uh, inadvertently siloed into our, our own little area, you know, that I'm a science communicator or that I'm an arts educator or that I'm a, a history curator, where in fact uh, we are all dealing with similar subjects of, of who we are, as Richard said, is who we are as humans and, uh, and how we interpret the world around us. And of course that world around us uh, and part of us is, is, is natural history. Uh, we've got uh, four minutes to close. Uh, no pressure on either one of you, but I want to give you both uh, one, uh, one last opportunity to uh, uh either mention something that, that uh, you want reinforced to our listeners or something that you didn't have a chance to, uh, to tell us? Uh, sure. I think, you know, as, as we wrap up here this, this morning, I think well, what I love about natural history museums is that, you know, they, they can be transformative. And that, that is true of all museums. And I think natural history museums in particular, though, provide – uh, visitors with a sense of place and scale within their world that is difficult to find otherwise. You know, natural history museums can show us that life on this planet had existed for four billion years, which is easy to say, but no human brain can comprehend that amount of time, and that each of us has a good 85 years on this planet if we're lucky. And so providing that that sense of scale of where we fit within the world and the universe, I think is, is actually quite a beautiful message. And I really, really think that natural history museums are fully capable of presenting that, that beauty. And, and Sarah, what's, what's your uh, uh, last word for us? I, you know, we've, we've talked a lot of, we've brought up a lot of challenging um, subjects for natural history museums today and sort of their direction. But I would encourage everyone to do not lose sight of the magic. Keep that part of your seven-year-old self. Those objects in those institutions have an incredible aura. And allowing them to move you and transport you in a very magical way is a significant experience. So don't lose sight of that magic is what I would say. Thank you. Uh, I think that is a wonderful place to leave us today and to close. Sarah, Richard, thank you both so much for well, your time you. today. Thank you, wonderful. Sarah. This was lots of fun. And uh, we will be back next week with an, with another very important and insightful guest. Uh, the museum world is is uh, such a wonderful place to work and to be a part of, and our community is is growing with even more uh, thoughtful people that I am thrilled to be able to share with you on this show. Uh, again, this is Carol Bossert. Thank you for listening today uh, to Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.